It is fantastic to be back for another week in the world of Sasta with me, your host, Harry Stebbings, found on Snapchat at HStebbings. All ads get a personal thank you, and it'll be fantastic to see you there. But to the show today, and a guest I've wanted to have on the show for many years now, fun fact, it's this company and this founder that inspired me to learn code, and it's also this company that occupied much of my time at law school. So to the show today, and I'm thrilled to welcome Ryan Carson to the hot seat. Now, Ryan is the founder and CEO at Treehouse, the startup that teaches you to code and learn the skills you need to launch a new career. They have backing from some of the best investors in the world, including the likes of Social Capital, Greylock Partners, and the notable individuals including Reid Hoffman, Josh Elman, and Mark Suster, just to name a few. As for Ryan, prior to Treehouse, he was the creator of the famous The Future of Web Apps conference, showing his unparalleled access to the top tier of West Coast founders. Due to the success of the conference, Ryan later sold the event to another events company. I do also want to say Ryan is one of the most genuine and mission-driven founders I've interviewed on the show, and it was such a pleasure to have him on. I also want to give a big hand to Kevin Rose at True Ventures for the intro to Ryan today, without which this episode would not have been possible. But enough from me, so without further ado, I'm thrilled to hand over to Ryan Carson, founder and CEO at Treehouse. Good, that's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Ryan, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today. A huge thanks to Kevin Rose for the intro, but thank you so much for joining me today, Ryan. No problem. Great to be here. Now, what a lot of people don't know is that I once sat in a law lecture at King's Law School, and instead of listening to the most boring law professor, I was sitting on my laptop doing a treehouse lecture on HTML, and I was absolutely engrossed. So I want to start today with a little about you and how you made your move into startup land and came to found uh, my escape route from law school. (laughs) You bet. So I got a computer science degree, and then I got a job. And then I realized the two were not connected at all. And I actually moved to England after university and was working away as a developer. And this bug was set in my mind. You know, why didn't my university degree give me the job skills that I needed? And it just ate at me. And uh, finally, I decided I needed to do something about it. And I thought, you know, let's teach people web design, web development, very simple. And we did in-person training for a long time. And then I thought, this doesn't scale. And I'm not really helping uh, enough people. I'm not going to move the needle. So let's take it online. So in 2010, we basically said, let's start an online school. And I tweeted out, we needed two teachers. I got those two teachers. And uh, we put a white sheet on the wall and we camera in front of them and we, we started Treehouse. Can, um, can I ask, was the recurring revenue model kind of inherent from the offset for you? Yes. And that's because I had learned painful lessons from our in-person training company where, you know, we had cash flows that were just brutal. We'd make all our money, you know, one week before this big conference or this this big workshop. And I just thought, I'm done with that. We we need a recurring revenue model. And that was from the beginning, charge 25 bucks a month. We literally copied lynda.com and their pricing. I think there's anything wrong with copying pricing mechanisms. I often have founders say to me, how do I determine pricing? You know, education might be thousands of pounds worth your service. How do you determine pricing? And is it wrong to copy others, do you think? I don't think so. I mean, we did it. It's clear that the market will bear that price and it's a good place to start. So I'd say if if you don't know, just start there and then test. I I, I do want to start there with a fantastic teaser that you were so cruel to give me before the show. (laughs) You said, Harry, as a founder, there's one thing you will need, otherwise you will quit. Very kindly, you didn't finish the sentence uh, (laughs) and you said, I have to wait for the show. So tell me now, what is this one thing that you need, otherwise you will quit? Well, there is a lie out there. And that is that we are all building Facebook 
or Instagram or, or Twitter. And it's just not true. Most of us are going to be building businesses for seven to 10 years minimum. And I think the, the lie of the quick flip, you know, the billionaire three-year journey is just not real. And so what people are going to need is a real deep why. And what I mean by that is a fundamental, emotional, almost spiritual reason why you run your business. If you don't have that, it's just too hard and you get discouraged. There's going to be a million walls you got to break through. I mean, everyone listening to the show has probably hit at least one wall, if not hundreds, and you just can't get through it. And it's just too hard and you, and you just quit. Can I ask, what's the hardest element that you found in terms of growing the SaaS business behind Treehouse? Have there been elements that stick out in terms of kind of inflection points of difficulty? Yep. I think churn is always the biggest challenge. You know, why are people quitting and can we figure out the moment that's causing that? There's a lot of tooling now that's being offered in the SaaS world. You know, I, I was at Saster Annual and, and a ton of the, the booths there were about churn reduction. But what's interesting is that we didn't focus on churn at all for the first six years of the business. The reason why is we always focused instead on building the best possible online school we could. And I think that maniacal focus on solving a problem, focusing on an amazing user experience really does go a long way. I wish we had focused on both, you know, the technical numbers and the product for those first six, seven years, but but we really focused on high quality. And I think that's part of the reason why we're thankfully so successful today. Can I ask two questions here? One is like, how do you analyze regrettable and then non-regrettable churn from your perspective? I think the way we look at it, there's, there's a couple simple things. If you're not optimizing your dunning process, which is when people churn out because their card gets declined, absolutely get on that. We increased our revenue by almost 30% by literally changing the way we done. And so, so what's the right way to do it. I'm, I'm, I'm um, beginning. Never stop is, is the right way. So like idiots, we basically were, were trying to charge people if the card would fail. We would try three more times and we, you know, we'd email each time and say, hey, uh, there's a problem, fix your card. <clears throat> and then after three times, we would cancel their service. And of course, that's dumb. And, and, and sometimes these things are staring you in the face. You just don't see them. So now what we do is we just bill indefinitely. We say, hey, we're just going to keep charging you because it may not work this month. It may not work in two months. It may not work in three months. But you know what? In the fourth month, maybe you'll fix your card. Uh, maybe we won't hit you on a day when you're all out of money. And then we'll start charging you again. Because for most of the people listening, there is real no additional cost to delivering service to that customer. So why turn them off? And so so, you know, seven years into the business, we figured out this simple truth. So I'm, I'm excited about that. And then kind of regrettable. So the way that we deal with regrettable churn, we try to touch people on a lot of different channels. And, and we use intercom is one. We use a lot of social is number two. And the idea is let's let people know as best we can what's coming, what's happening. Let's interact with them like real people so that they don't feel like they're talking to a big company. And from the initial uh, results that appears to be working for us. We also spoke before the show about optimizing another element of the business, and you were very passionate about optimizing dev talent pipelines. You said to me again before that most talent pipelines are broken due to one simple fact. I don't know why you keep leaving me in suspense. <laughs> <laughs> but, but tell me, why are the talent pipelines broken for devs? And, and talk to me about this. 
So the problem is all of us are, are saying we can't hire enough talent. You know, where are the developers? Where are the engineers? You know, we need them now. And the reason why is because we're not hiring apprentices. And so I think the UK does an amazing job of apprenticeship. But in the US, we've lost the plot. And we believe that the only place to hire great developers is out of college. And the problem is there aren't enough people getting computer science degrees. And in fact, there, there will never be. So in the next 10 years, Indeed.com has said there are going to be 1.3 million developer jobs created, but the universities are only going to be able to graduate 400,000. So we have 900,000 jobs that we're not going to be able to fill if we won't change where we look for talent. And so I'm imploring all of you CEOs to consider that actually the answer is apprenticeship. And what I mean by that is completely go around the college talent pipeline. Yes, hire talent talent from colleges if you can. You're lucky if you can, but Google and Facebook are going to get all of them. And so you don't have a chance. And so instead, boot up an apprenticeship program. So go to your local community-based organization, like a Boys and Girls Club or a church or Black Girls Who Code or, or really any community that is based in your local area and say, we need you to recruit talent into this pipeline and tell them there are jobs. There are amazing jobs, like literally right here. They don't require a college degree. Please communicate that message. And then as an employer, what you need to do then is fund an affordable education. So obviously, I'm biased about this. You know, we created Treehouse and our tech degree to be about 1200 bucks. You learn at night. And the idea is you can get anybody job ready in six months for an apprenticeship. So fund that as an employer. Invest in that. And then every three months, you'll have people coming out of this talent pipeline that are ready for apprenticeship. And then apprenticeship is very simple. Hire, a, assign a mentor have regular cadence meetings, turn that person into a full-time developer, which will probably only cost you 50K once you hire them. So all of a sudden, you've booted up this amazing, sustainable, diverse talent pipeline, and you will never need to go and look for outside talent again. You'll always be grooming uh, essentially a farm team You know, for you baseball fans out there. So I think that's the answer. I would love to get that baseball analogy, but being a Brit, I have absolutely no <laughs> idea what you're talking about. But I do, I do want to remain on The Apprentice and just talk about when you're really in those early stages of finding the apprentices and actually getting the right one, what are the seeds of kind of hope and opportunity that you'd look for in those kind of young seedlings looking to rise up the ranks? Are there kind of commonalities you found to the successful ones? Yep, it's grit. That's basically it. Um, If you can identify that someone has grit and they are a lifelong learner, that's all you need. Because as you know, ask any senior developer something like, how often do you use Google? per day. (laughs) And they'll say five to 10 times. And so the secret here is that there isn't such a thing as someone who has learned development. So the idea is find someone with grit and uh, who loves learning, and that will be an amazing employee for you. And what we find is we're giving people the opportunity, you know, people of color and women um, to come into this pipeline. And because they haven't heard about these opportunities many times, or they don't see people like them working in these jobs. This is new to them. And, and when you say, listen, there are jobs that pay 50K with no college degree. They're the hardest working people I've ever 
met. I literally just met these two young Hispanic women the other day who are going to enter this pilot program for apprenticeship that we're launching. And I said, what do you do now? And they said, well, uh, right now we work 40 hours a week and we go to school. So these people that I'm finding that didn't know about this talent pipeline are the hardest working people I've ever met. They should try doing a podcast in the fun. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Harry, you're a hardworking person as well, right? And this is one of those secrets that is in the wide open is that the only way to do any of this stuff is extreme hard work, right? So let's look for people with grit and that are willing to learn and let's get them into our talent pipeline. And and speaking of kind of developing the people there, I'd love to talk about the development of of Treehouse as a company and in particular kind of moving through the stages of different scaling SaaS kind of inflection points. Jason's always told me that the first, Jason Lemkin that is, the first 10 unaffiliated customers is the first sign of pre-success. Let's start with that and when you define kind of the first milestone of product market fit or pre-success to be? You bet. So we had an interesting path. So I launched this in-person training company where we did conferences and workshops. And, you know, I worked on that for five years. And so I built up this community of people who trusted me, uh, knew that I stood for teaching design and development. And so I launched Treehouse on the back of that. And so when we launched Treehouse, I literally sponsored my own conference and said, hey, we've got a and now an online school and you should try it. And I think we had 3000 paying customers in about a week. And so the lesson to learn there is that if you can establish a trusted community that believes in what you're doing and understands the quality, and then you launch a service on top of that, it's it's a great way to create an overnight success that takes five years. Absolutely. It almost reminds me of Seth Godin's Purple Cow, kind of creating products around an alternate product to drive to the core product. Do you know what yes. I mean? Yes. Yeah. Yep. And it worked for us. And, uh, you know, so we established, uh, you know, a million dollars in AR very quickly. Now, inflection points when it got hard were as the company scaled employee wise, you know, you hit a, a certain number of people. It felt like it was about 15 full time employees where, you know, all of a sudden you have to start building out management and, and figure out how to communicate things because people don't know what to do or, or don't understand what they should be focusing on. That was always a challenge. What do you think you did that allowed you to pass through that six? successfully as you did. It's funny because I, I laugh because um, I think we survived. I, I wouldn't say we successfully passed through it because we really learned the hard way. You know, I, I didn't train my managers at first. We had a breakdown where uh, people didn't know what was going on and they were frustrated. And, and only later did we come back to saying, oh, of course, we have to train managers because management is not an inherent human skill. And so let's train that. So I would encourage everybody listening, don't fight gravity. So the reason why I love the Saster podcast and you and Jason so much is because you share the basic rules of business and SaaS. And uh, if you try to reinvent those rules, you basically slow yourself down for no reason at all. So listen to those rules. Don't fight them. Don't try to innovate, you know, the way you work. So because you're an amazing entrepreneur, just go with the rules (laughs) and you'll be fine. There's one really interesting element combining kind of the actual two previous questions of scaling the company and scaling the people. And it's kind of integrating the two. Do you think people can scale with the growth of the company or do you subscribe to the thinking that people are very much defined to certain stages of the business where you're very good at seed, you're very good at series you know, D and beyond mm. stage? Do you agree with that or do you think there is the flexibility to move through? I think most people are really good at certain stages and that's okay because that's where they, where they want to be. You know, People want to work in, in, in a company that is 
one to 20 people. And then when it gets bigger, they start feeling like, you know, the amount of communication they have to do or the way they have to coordinate changes and they don't like that. So they're not great for the next stage. And then you have people that love the middle stage. So I think it's perfectly normal to say there are folks that are great at each stage and you should identify that and you should both be clear when you hit the ceiling of that stage. And then you're lucky sometimes and you find some people that can scale and are wonderful through the whole journey and they're able to do that. But I, I think most people don't scale and that's okay, nor do they want to. No, I know. I agree. I, I do want to have one more question before we dive into your very special quick fire round. And that Let's is, Jason always says to me, once 2 million ARR, Harry, I tell you, if you did a SaaS startup, you would find it the most painful scaling element of the process. Do you agree with this now, having been through the process, being 1 to 2 million being the most challenging? Nope, I don't agree. <laughs> okay, and the re- why don't you? And what was? Well, it might be because we were lucky to have great product market fit from day one, but it was easy. I mean, we grew 100% year on year, and I, to be frank, I didn't even know why. We're lucky. I hate it when that happens. Right. It, it, yeah, and it's it, we're lucky, and that's not normal. And then the realities of okay, we need to understand our unit economics. You know, we need to figure out attribution, but we need to build a sales team and scale. That all hit. And we're a fairly large business today. And we've had to learn all those mid-tier lessons that were quite painful. But, you know, I want to encourage everybody out there to remember that every stage is hard and that's okay. Um, the mid-tier so, lessons that were the most painful? I would say the mid-tier lessons that were most painful were how to train management so we can align everybody. Number two, Two is how do we build scoreboards that drive good behavior and results is very hard. And then uh, number three is attribution. You know, literally, how do we attribute all these channels? We've got YouTube, social, email, PPC. It's very hard. And so that was difficult. I do want to dive into my favorite element of any interview. uh, And it's just for you. It's Ryan's 60 seconds faster. Okay. So 60 seconds per statement. How does that sound? Let's do it. Okay. So what advice would you have? You can only have one nugget of advice for early (laughs) stage SaaS founders. Having done this before, yourself know your why figure out it figure out that one reason why you started the company and focus on it every day you did drop send many years ago how have you seen the industry evolve and develop since then and now to this day with with treehouse in 2017 uh when we launched drop send we had to literally build our servers and figure out how to scale them and now we live in this magic land where you have platform as a service and we should remember how easy we have it now it's it's amazing i'm, I'm gonna be honest i don't think i've ever lived in a time with platforms as well. that's why i can remember it so i'm very lucky that the world of aws has saved me um yes that's great but freemium in SaaS pros cons and requirements for success treehouse does have freemium versions do i believe in freemium yes but i absolutely believe in charging for your product so we have a seven-day free trial but we've always asked people to put in their credit card from day one on that trial. And I think this is very important. You know, we have competitors who are fundamentally opposed to us on this that have a completely free product. Well, I just think you have to build a real business. Charge for your product. Do you also find, or do you also agree with my thinking that the minute you charge someone, there's not not an obligation because that's the wrong thing, but it's the commitment to learning that you don't have if it's like, hey, I'll drop by Linda. Exactly. It's important to ask people to commit. And then what do you know now that you wish you'd known at the very beginning of your time with Treehouse? The one thing 
I wish I would have known when I started is how to measure people with scoreboards to drive effective behavior in a positive way. And we've now uh, focused on a book called Four Disciplines of Execution, and it's great. Okay, uh, you just hold the thought. Four Disciplines of Execution, scoring people with a scoreboard. How do we do this? Tell me. I've got a team now with the podcast. I'd love to hear how you do that with the scoreboard. Okay, great. So the idea is fairly simple. What you do is you identify the most important thing that the company needs to be doing right now. The thing that if you don't do, you'll die. And you specify that. And that's called your wildly important goal or a wig. And once you identify it, then you say, okay, let's make a scoreboard for that. And the idea is you can see immediately if you're winning or losing. So it has to be do this by this date. So measurable by a date. The problem is you can't usually affect that goal. You know, that will be something like downloads in the podcast or revenue. The things you can do to affect that are called lead measures. And lead measures are things you can do every day. And anyone in sales will understand this concept. Okay, I can't make deals happen, but what I can make happen are phone calls or emails. And so the lead measure is, again, it's a graph and you say, every day I'm going to do 10 of these activities. As long as I'm doing those activities, then I'm winning. And then every week you look at this lead scoreboard and you see if it's affecting the scoreboard above it, which is called the lag scoreboard. Uh, And then you just iterate every week. Can I ask, how do you prevent uh, discouragement and kind of saddening feelings within the team when they don't maybe hit their scoreboards? That is a great question. So the way we encourage people when things aren't going right is by empowering them uh, to try something new. So the idea is, okay, last week you did all your lead measures, you won on that scoreboard, but the lag measure is still losing. So now next week, let's pick a different lead measure to try. And so you're empowering people to solve the problem and and saying, okay, what do you think you can do to to change that top scoreboard? And hopefully after two, three, four iterations, you know, a month of work, you start to see it change. If you don't, then you're in a tough spot where you realize, okay, everything we're trying is not working. Now what? But that that tends to be a strategy, you know, fundamental problem that is really higher up. Attribution-wise of task, is it up to you, the the kind of leader, to, to attribute tasks to people? Or is it up to them kind of choosing their vision and their why and going for the bit that they're most passionate about? It's really important to empower people to solve the problem the way they think is going to work. So you basically identify that while the important goal and the scoreboard to measure it, but then the whole point is to empower them to say, okay, what do you think needs to be done to solve that problem? And, and that's where all the motivation and all the uh, passion, all the work comes from. If, if you say, you know, if I said to you, uh, all right, Harry, the most important, all the important goal is that we hit a million downloads this month. Now, here's what you're going to do to fix that. You're going to do X, Y, Z. It, it immediately disempowers you and makes you discouraged. Talking of the team now, though, and final question, team diversity is kind of top of everyone's mind, especially all the founders I have on the show. So tell me, what do you do at Treehouse to ensure that you don't have a, as you said before, a bunch of white guys? And then how do you kind of ensure for that differentiated cultured team? You are not going to be able to hire black developers, women developers, Latinx developers, unless you change your talent pipeline. And every CEO that's listening needs to understand that. All the talented people, all the diverse people are going to get snapped up by your well-funded, sexy competitors, um, the Facebooks, Googles, Instagram. So here's what you need to do. You need to do what we talked about earlier in the show and open up your talent pipeline by going to your local communities or your boys and girls club, your churches, black girls who code, 
and ask them to recruit for you. And it's hard work. And then at the other end, you create an apprenticeship. So the only way you're going to hire diverse talent is by creating apprenticeships. There just isn't this magical, diverse workforce out there that you, you can hire just isn't there. And and then you build this long-term, sustainable, diverse talent pipeline from within your company. It's great. But listen, Ryan, you were one of the many reasons that I decided to leave law. Uh, probably one of the most <laughs> brilliant decisions I've ever made. Uh, Treehouse still to this day is a 30-minute exercise every night for me at 10 p.m. Uh, uh, I can't thank you enough for all you've done for me personally. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's an honor to be on the show. What a man, and I really meant everything I said there in terms of the transformative impact that both Ryan and Treehouse have had for me, so I'm so grateful to him for that, and a massive hand to him for coming on the show today, and a big thank you to Kevin Rose at True Ventures for making the introduction which allowed the episode to take place. And if you'd like to see more from me, then you can follow me on Snapchat at hstebbings, or you can follow the main man, Mr. Jason Lemkin, on Twitter at JasonLK. We would both love to see you on those respective platforms. As always, we so appreciate all your support, and cannot wait to bring you Friday's episode.